0: The reason why these people who are so different, diverse, uh, races, genders, ages, all the rest, uh, the reason why they're going out to these places is because they are yielding to the king of kings. They believe that Jesus is their king. Um, Whatever else people may think about him, they believe he's king above all kings and that he's... um, worthy of their time and their effort and their sacrifice. And uh, they feel safe in the uh, presence of the king, even as they go to these places, maybe with some folks who object to them and their message. They go because they're in the kingdom and they're serving the king, King Jesus. Now, I've repeated the word king a million times. Royalty and authority, supremacy it means. And that's why it is so unusual to me, and I'm sure to you, to consider the vehicle, (laughs) if I can call it that, the vehicle the king made use of when he made his entry into his capital city, Jerusalem, some 2,000 years ago. Jesus the king on a donkey. Now, you're familiar with that, but don't take it for granted, though it be familiar. This is an amazing thing. This Jesus, whom we serve and gladly bow before, is not like other kings. He's unusual. And uh, this event, the Lord's entry into Jerusalem in this manner, was so striking that it is one of the only events recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They all have something to say about it, and because we've been in John's gospel, uh, let's see what he has to say about this rather striking event. It's in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. I'll read it to you, or if you have your Bibles, please read along. It's John 12, beginning in verse 12, and here's how it begins. It says, on the next day. So we have a bit of a time indicator. The place, as I mentioned, is... Jerusalem, and the occasion uh, is Passover, one of the feasts of Israel. And this particular week that we are uh, being introduced to is, uh, or has now come to be known as um, the Passion Week, or the Lord's Passion. And I always stumbled over that word. I didn't know what it meant. It's, it's from a Latin word, passeo, which means to suffer. So the king, above all kings, is about to suffer at the hands of humankind. This is so ironic. The very creatures whom he created are about to turn upon him and take his life. Well, royal, divine kings can't die unless they become man, and that's what the Lord did. So this is his week of suffering. The king of kings, the one who has no beginning nor end, the one who's uh, accountable to no one for his existence, the one who, in fact, can speak things into existence in the power of his word, this one is submitting to a horrific week of suffering culminating in perhaps the most uh, torturous form of capital punishment ever devised by humankind. He'll be pierced through and impaled on, on a tree. He'll be, he'll be crucified. This is his, this is his passion week. And the large crowd, the text says, who had come to the feast, feast of Passover, as I mentioned, there would be a large crowd because Passover is one of the three Hebrew pilgrim feasts, during which time it was, um, uh, folks were obligated to make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And so the normal population of Jerusalem, whatever it was, would be multiplied Um, um, multiple times by the pilgrims there for this particular feast. In fact, Josephus, a historian you may be familiar with, uh, approximates that there were 2,700,000 visitors to Jerusalem on this occasion. If you have been to Jerusalem, you know it's kind of not a big place. Its streets are narrow and it's crowded. Can you imagine its normal population swelling by almost 3 million? Well, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, yeah, the word traveled far and wide. This unusual rabbi Jesus surely would be there as an observant Jew along with the others during this pilgrim feast. And they had heard lots of things about Jesus, but one of the most remarkable things that was going around is that he gave life to a man who had been dead for four straight days. He untombed him commanded him to walk and live, and he would live. And the normal enthusiasm for the Passover was uh, multiplied by the fact that this miracle-working Jesus would be there, and they might even get a chance to see Lazarus, who had been dead but is now alive. And so this crowd, this massive crowd, according to verse 13, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. So um, here's a an idea of the kind of palm tree they got the branches from. Some say they got this from the Mount of Olives, which was nearby. Others say, no, they went further away to Jericho, called the City of Palms, and they brought the uh, palm leaves from there. This is a date palm tree, uh, and they are flourishing in Israel even now, as they did 2,000 years ago. It can grow to heights of 50 or 60 feet, and those branches could extend six or seven feet, and they look like fans, and people would use them, you see, as fans to line the streets of a dignitary or important person traveling down the street, and so they cut down these it's from a date palm tree. They cut down these leaves in order to honor this very unusual rabbi Jesus. And uh, as a result of their use of the palm leaves, that day uh, down to this very day is called Palm Sunday. That's where we got the name Palm Sunday from their use of the palm leaves. And so it says they, the crowd began to shout. This is what they shouted. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Hosanna, folks, it means God save us. It's a Hebrew word. And they got the word from Psalm 118. On this occasion, Jews going up to Jerusalem as pilgrims would sing along the way, would make their journey more meaningful, and less difficult. And one of the Psalms they would sing on Passover on their way up to the temple was Psalm 118 from which this exclamation is taken, Hosanna, God save us. So I wonder and I ask you, is it a good thing that the crowd 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, is it a good thing that they were honoring this Jesus, our Lord, in this fashion? and shouting to him, God, save us. Well, you would think if you responded too quickly, surely this is a good thing, uh, but maybe it's not such a good thing. I'm certain in the crowd there were some, maybe even many, who understood what they were saying, and who were in fact offering tribute to their Savior, the Savior of all who call upon his Name. I'm sure they were sincere and with full understanding acknowledged his messiahship in doing what they were doing. But I'm just as sure that many in the crowd, in fact, many, perhaps most, didn't understand what they were doing at all. My guess is they were envisioning a messiah. They wished it was Yeshua, this Jesus, but I think they were envisioning a messiah, a deliverer after their own making. You see, they were. Celebrating and they were hopefully imagining the coming of uh, Jesus as deliverer from Roman oppression. It was the Romans who oppressed them at this particular time and they yearned to be liberated politically. So I think their expectation really was for a kind of a political Messiah and not the one he turned out to be. And uh, I think the evidence of this is that the same ones who on this Palm Sunday exclaimed, Hosanna, Hosanna, these same ones just a few days later would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. in fact, this is, the account we get from Matthew in chapter 27, verse 22, Pilate, he was one of the Roman governing officials, Pilate said to them, to the crowd, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And here's what they said. They all said, crucify him. Can you see the fickle nature of crowd behavior? And so the crowd in Jerusalem, they welcomed this unusual rabbi Jesus, but I think most welcomed him as a messiah of their own making. And I think they saw him to be a kind of political leader who would perhaps free them from Roman oppression. And so they cried, Hosanna, save us from the Romans. But the Lord came to save them from their sin. And I'm sure they were crying out, conquer Rome for us. But the Lord came to conquer sin in us. And so they expected him to do what He said he never came to do, and it occurred to me we're prone to do the same thing. We have an expectation of Jesus that (laughs) sometimes he never promised, and this particularly is revealed during difficult times. When you and I suffer and run into hardships and are in pain, we're very prone to say to this Messiah, Jesus, who we know is there, we're very prone to say, where are you? Or why are you allowing this to happen? Or Why don't you, if you are who you are, why don't you do something about this? I'm telling you, even the best of us at times of pain are prone to have that attitude. And so our attitude is very similar to the folks back in Jerusalem. I think we're fashioning a Messiah sometimes according to our own making because the Messiah I read about in the Bible, and you do too, he never promised a pain-free existence to us. Never, never. Never. Uh, In fact, he promised the opposite. He promised that we'll suffer. He he said, in the world, you have, yeah, tribulation. See, that's a promise. That's what he said. So a lot of times in distress, our expectations of what Jesus came to do are, are get a little distorted. He, He did not come to deliver us from the pains of life. He came to deliver us through the pains of life until we enter into eternal life, see him face to face, and then in an instant, everything, even the pains of life, will make sense. But Jesus' primary purpose in coming here is to deliver us from the penalty of sin that envelops us here. That's what he came to do, and in this, he's a great success. Well, the crowd in Jerusalem had a false expectation of why the Messiah would come, and soon they'll become very disappointed by a deliverer who allowed himself to be whipped and beaten and, this is amazing, even crucified. They'll lose all confidence in him when that happens. So verse 14 goes on to say, "'Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written.'" See that last phrase, as it is written? Absolutely everything about the Lord's life and death uh, is in fulfillment of something that had been previously written by one of the prophets. There is nothing arbitrary about, no aspect in his life or death that's accidental or whimsical or subject to the cruel winds of faith. Everything is designed to be in fulfillment of what came, in some cases, hundreds and hundreds of years before so that there would be no mistake about it, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. So this particular incident that we're seeing, the Lord riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, was as it is written. Specifically, according to verse 15, this is the Old Testament verse that predicted his manner of entry. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Or you might have the word foal of a donkey. That's a young male donkey. And that quotation is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, hundreds of years before the event we're reading about here. Zechariah prophesied that the king of Israel, imagine it, would enter the capital of Israel on a donkey that looked like this. That's it. I mean, you would expect a triumphant king to ride into his capital city on a horse. That's what they did in that day, a war horse. If you were a victorious king and you'd have a sword in your hand and a crown (laughs) on your head, You wouldn't come in on a donkey in this fashion. And I'll bet you on that Palm Sunday, the Roman soldiers standing guard to make sure the crowd would not get out of hand, I'll bet you they had a good laugh. Because when the Romans envisioned a triumphal entry through the gates and archways and streets of Rome, I tell you, it wasn't like this at all. Which leads to the question, why then did King Jesus come into Jerusalem this way. Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, he did it so as to be specifically and precisely in compliance with Zechariah's prophecy. Here, in fact, is the full statement of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah's prophecy. Hundreds of years later, it's being fulfilled by none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So the Lord came into Jerusalem in this very unusual way, purposefully to demonstrate that he was coming specifically in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And there's another reason why he entered Jerusalem this way. I think it is to demonstrate not just that he was the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah was he? See, when a king was intent on war, he came riding on a horse. But when a king was coming in peace, he would enter a city riding on a donkey. And so the Lord is making quite a statement here. His manner of Entry is symbolizing his mission. He did not come to make war against Rome. He came to make peace between God and man. And so, this means of transportation, a donkey, was all part of the Lord's plan. Nothing was at random. Uh, now folks when he came into Jerusalem on that day I assure you he could not be heard by close to 3 million people uh, but he could be seen by most of those and that's why he he gave this wordless sermon look at me look at the manner of my entry into Jerusalem I'm the one whom Zechariah spoke of riding on a donkey. Now, by the way, let's take a few minutes to talk about the donkey. I mean, <laughs> the donkey gets a lot of play in this text for good reason. Luke's account, for instance, of this episode in chapter 19 tells us that the Lord sent two of his disciples to go into a village on the Mount of Olives. There, he told them they'll find a colt, and uh, it's going to be tied up. It's a a young donkey's colt, and uh, it's a colt on which no one has ever sat, the Lord told them. He told them, untie it and bring it to me. And he said, by the way, if anyone asks you, it's kind of weird for you to go into a village, take a donkey that's not yours. So if anyone asks you, what, what's up? What are you doing? You want to tell them the Lord has need of it. And you see, the Lord gave them very, very specific information, detailed instructions. He, he knew about everything in advance. He knew the location of the colt. He knew it would be tied up. He knew no one had ever sat on it before. He knew people would probably respond by asking, what are you doing? He told them how they are to respond back. Folks, he's in control of everything. And I tell you, his disciples, not just the two, but the others, they needed to see this because in a few days, everything is up for grabs everything they were counting on is out the window. Their whole life and hopeful expectation of a kingly Messiah who's going to liberate them from Roman oppression, this one who they, these Galilean fishermen were by faith following, is going to be crucified. In a few moments, they're going to think everything is out of control, and they need evidence of the fact that it's not true. The Messiah is fully in control, and there he's demonstrating his sovereignty you see. He's going to be taken. He's going to be tried. He's going to be mocked, beaten, and murdered. Everything will seem hopeless to them, but it is not. He's in control entirely. In fact, folks, nobody could have taken his life if he didn't choose voluntarily to lay it down. And so I was thinking that a major cause of hopelessness for me when I get hopeless, and therefore I assume for you, is when we underestimate the sovereignty of God that will really drive us into a downward spiral of hopeless despair. When we minimize the sovereignty of God, we get a surprise, a call in the night with terrible news. We dread those. We lose a job. We get a medical diagnosis we didn't see coming. A family member is in trouble of one kind or another and we're overtaken by this unfortunate turn of events. The cruel winds of fate have bitten us again, and it's all because we are underestimating the sovereignty of God. He's never out of control. He's surprised by nothing. He sees everything coming, and he can use all things, even those things that rock us, he can use all things for the good. He's Lord, and he's master, and yet He's quite an unusual one. He said to them, if anyone, this is Luke's account, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord needs it. That's what you should say. But you could ask the question, how in the world could a Lord need anything? He had everything, but he laid it all aside. And he became as one who had very little of what the world offers, the ruler of all. He possessed nothing. He didn't have a donkey. You see, he's the most unusual king and lord. He had so very little of the world's goods. In fact, he had more need than he had material stuff. The Lord of hosts, it's amazing, has need of a donkey. And this donkey is one, we read, on which no one has ever sat. You know what that means? It would buck. That's what they do. It's untrained, it would buck, but we see our Lord's sovereignty extending to all creatures, even this donkey, so that when the Lord sat on it, it didn't kick, it didn't fight to have its divine rider removed at all. And the text goes on to say in verse 16, these things his, his disciples didn't understand. I can understand why they didn't understand. They didn't understand that at the time. But when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered all these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. After he was glorified, in other words, after he was crucified but resurrected, then everything changed. The penny dropped and they got it. Oh my goodness, said they. What Zechariah and the other prophets said, all this is true of this Jesus who has risen from the dead. And their post-resurrection perspective change things, and it must do it for us as well. Listen, folks, if all we have is a crucified Savior, we're in trouble. Remember, we have a crucified Savior who beat up on death. It's the last enemy, and he removed its sting by rising up from it and bequeathing that capacity to all of those who are in union with him by faith. Remember, the, cross is not the last word. Folks, the empty tomb is the last word. Many people were crucified in that day, but only one rose up and left an empty tomb. It's our post-resurrection perspective that will give us hope and peace in this increasingly unstable existence. Now, verse 17, so the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify about him. And for this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So you see, I told you, the size of the crowd already large was even larger because they wanted to see Lazarus and the one who gave him life. So verse 19, the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, said to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. They said this to each other. He said, you're not doing any good. Why not? Look, the world has gone after him. In their frustration, do you see it? They said something without even realizing it that would in fact come to pass. I met a follower of Jesus one time from China. One time I met a follower of Jesus from India, from Korea, from Japan. I met a follower of Jesus one time from Argentina and another one from Venezuela. I have met followers of Jesus from Mexico. I I have met followers of Jesus, folks who went out to him in Canada. I've met followers of Jesus who are from Russia and the Ukraine. I have met followers of Jesus from Pearland, Texas. Texas. The Jewish religious leaders, they don't get it. You're darn tootin'. No truer words were ever spoken. The world has gone after him. Folks, nothing can keep the Lord Jesus and his redemptive mission from going forth and being accomplished. The gospel message is the power of God for salvation, and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. These Jewish religious leaders, they, did, they didn't really get it, and so they said, you see, you are you're not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone out after him. What an irony that is. They are, in effect, declaring their inability to prevent the success of Jesus' mission in drawing all kinds of people to himself as Savior and Lord. Now, here's something else they didn't get. They didn't understand that the Lord was forcing their hand. They thought they were calling the shots, but they were simply being used. I'll tell you what I mean. It's Passover, as I mentioned. All kinds of Passover lambs were being sacrificed on this occasion to provide for the remission of sins. Josephus, again, estimates that there were over um, a half a million uh, lambs who were sacrificed on this particular occasion The Lord had to be crucified during the Passover because he's the Passover lamb who would render all of these sacrifices of no account and of no necessity and of no value anymore because when Jesus, the Passover lamb, was being crucified, he said, it is finished. He canceled out the debt and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, as if he was a high priest who no longer had that kind of work to do. The work was over and completed. It had to be on this occasion, and these cruel, wicked, desperately evil Jewish religious leaders thought they were in control, but they were not. They were acting in such fashion that they were playing right into the prophesied, redemptive plan of Almighty God. Now, why did Jesus do this? He knew the desperately wicked plans of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin? Why did he come into Jerusalem and go public on this particular occasion? I think he did it because he was inviting the Jewish religious leaders to act, as I mentioned, specifically at this time. He came to die, folks, and it must happen during the Passover, for he is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. And he did what he did because he loves us. Let's not forget that. He knew he would be murdered in an excruciating way, and yet he came to experience death in our place for our sin so that you and I could live with the burden of our sin absolutely removed. Now, I want to show you the route the Lord traveled on that first Palm Sunday. So take a look, if you will, at this Can you see to the right side of the slide a place called Bethany? We've spoken about it. That's where Lazarus lived. And if you travel from Bethany on that green line, you go to another place on the Mount of Olives called Bethpage. And then as you continue to travel, you're going east to west. The Mount of Olives is about, oh, I don't know, 2,600 feet above sea level. And so you're traveling across the Mount of Olives, and then you're going to go across a valley. It's a depressed area called the Kidron Valley. There was a walking bridge in that day. It does not exist today. The Lord would have walked over that bridge into that uh, rectangular area labeled temple. That's where the temple stood. And he would have entered, you can see it there, on the east side of the temple precincts. Specifically, he would have gone through Uh, a specific gate known as the Eastern Gate. Later, it was called the Golden Gate, and there's something very interesting about that particular uh, gate. Um, The original gate is now underground. Uh, You can't see it, but on top of it today, you can see this gate. Take a look at this slide, if you don't mind. You can see this today. That was built, oh, in the 1500s, and it is that, you see that double arched gate? It's called sometimes the double gate. That's the eastern gate which stands right on the foundation of the gate in which, through which the Lord uh, passed on a donkey at his first coming. You see what you're looking at right now? That's the gate through which he will pass again when he returns. I've been to Israel a million times. That's there. Some of us, Lord willing, unless the rapture comes first, are going to go in October. If some of you are here, that's what you will see close up. That's the gate through which the Lord will reach up. But, but perhaps you're noticing a problem. It's bricked in. You see, Jerusalem was under the control of the Ottoman Turks, the ruler of which was someone called Suleiman the Magnificent. In 1541, he bricked it up. Why did he do it? He knew about the Bible, and he thought that Christians are naive, and uh, they're living with undue faith in this rather mythological character, Jesus, and there's a legend about his return through those gates, and so to um, keep that from from persisting, he bricked up the gate, so that would lay to rest this crazy fantasy that Christians have (laughs) of their Savior coming through that gate. not only that, perhaps you're noticing there's a cemetery outside that gate. You might be surprised to know it's a Muslim cemetery. The next time someone tells you Israel doesn't allow freedom of religion and is an apartheid state, good night. That's about one of the holiest sites in Jerusalem and the Israeli government has allowed a Muslim cemetery to be built right there. Now, why was it built right there? Because Muslim leaders believe Jesus, he's not the Messiah, he's not the Savior, he's surely not God in flesh, he's not divine, but he's a prophet. They will respect him as a prophet. And if he's a good prophet and a holy man, they say, he will not defile himself. He will not render himself to be ceremonially unclean by walking through a place of the dead. That's why they put the Muslim cemetery right there. So you got a bricked-in wall, and you got a Muslim cemetery. I ask you a simple question. Are those things going to keep Jesus from returning? No, they're not. He's coming again, and neither bricks nor cemetery will keep him from entering those very gates again. He's coming again to the Mount of Olives. And in fact, the same Zechariah who told us about his first coming also told us about his second coming. I'll read it to you. It's Zechariah 14.4. When we go to Jerusalem, I read this on the Mount of Olives. You'll see why. Listen. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, just as the map showed us. And the Mount of Olives will be, think about this, split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other toward the south. Folks, it will make a big valley. Who do you think is going to travel through it to enter those gates? And Zechariah 49 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Folks, the first coming has taken place just as we read. And the second coming will also take place, just as we read. The second coming, however, will be entirely different than the first coming. Please give me a few more minutes to read to you what this same gospel writer, John, tells us. He also wrote, you know, the book of Revelation. I'd like to read to you how he describes the Lord's second coming, first coming, humble, mounted on a donkey. Listen to his second coming, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. John speaking. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Who else could that be? And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He came with none the first time. He'll come with many the second. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, he came the first time as Lamb of God. He will come the second time as the Lion of Judah. I close with these simple words. If you got his first coming right, you don't have a thing to worry about with regard to his second coming. But if you're missing the reason why he came the first time, to suffer and die on a cross for your sin and mine waiting for you to take up his invitation to accept him as personal savior, whose blood, the very blood that was on his white robe, was shed to cover up for the scarlet nature of your sin. If you get that right, all that, that was involved in his first coming, not only do you have nothing to fear about his second coming, you are looking forward to it with hopeful expectation. But don't underestimate him. He came the first time to judge sin. I got it but the second time he comes to judge sinners. I'm telling you, if your sin is not judged in Jesus, it's judged in you. That's the choice you have to make. He came the first time for a little while. Don't miss this. He'll come the second time permanently. He came the first time, humble and mounted on a donkey. The second time he will come to wage war against sinners. Folks, I beseech you, if you have not accepted this Jesus, an unlikely king, an unusual one who came to effect peace between you and his father, the mediator, and the only one who could do it, because on the divine side, he's the son of God, and on the human side, he's the son of man. He all, he's the only one who could take our hand and put it into the hand of his father. No one else could stand in the gap. If you have not accepted him as the mediator between you and God, please do so tonight. Please say, Lord Jesus, Thank you for coming the first time. I believe you would have come if it was just me. The world is going out to you, and I don't want to be left out. People of every kindred and tribe and tongue are coming to you. They don't have to have pedigree or credentials. Everyone who's coming to you comes with an empty hand, fully aware of sin, but there's no fullness of riches to offer. Everyone is coming to you simply saying, I am a sinner. Please save me by your grace and by your mercy. Oh, God in heaven, change my status. Join me to yourself. Let me be united with your death, burial, and resurrection. As you gave Lazarus new life from the dead of a physical kind. Oh, God, elevate me from the deadness of my sin. Let me live anew and walk closely with you. I'm telling you, if you say that, if you utter that prayer as a reflection of your heart, even tonight, then the Lord Jesus says, I'm so pleased that you're on right terms now with my Father. I'm so pleased to be your savior. Welcome into the family. And maybe you'll hear him maybe you'll hear him nudge you a little bit and whisper in your ear and you think this is good. The best is yet to come. I'm coming again. Folks, if you have not ever made that decision to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, please, as we dismiss soon, make your way to the Connection Center where there will be people there who will help you to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Questions are permitted. Good questions. Why would he have me? Could he forgive my sin? Do you know what I'm like? What are his expectations of me? What if I fall into sin again? what does he want me to do? Those are good questions. There are people in that connection center, and they're there now, and they'll wait for you, and they'll listen to you as you pour out your heart, and then they'll help you to pray an invitation to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior so that you have no fear of the wrath of God to come. Remember, he came first humble and mounted on a donkey, but later the Lion of Judah. Get his first coming right And then you'll live in hopeful expectation of his second coming. I know we're getting late and there's all stuff to do. But please, your very eternity hangs in the balance. Go to the Connection Center. Meet with someone there. Give them a chance. Say, will you lead me to Christ? Say that.